Has anybody seen this tiny Palm phone? Is that the companion one that goes with your real phone? Yeah. I'm so bummed about how they're marketing it. Why? Why? I think it's a great idea. You don't need a watch. You need a tiny phone. Okay, you're right. That sounds that sounds dumb. I want a tiny phone instead of a giant phone. I just want that to be a thing again. I miss my small phones. I know. Cassidy, what you're, what you're looking for is the Sony XZ1. Uh, I had a, uh, X, a Sony something compact, and it was pretty good. Oh, that but, one. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, the compact version. I just, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm happy that they're doing it. I just wish more people made small phones. I wish I wish yeah. that a three and a half inch phone didn't have to be marketed as a companion. As a could weird be marketed thing. as like <laughs> a phone. Well, you know what would legit make me buy this right now though is if it ran WebOS again. That would be so amazing. <laughs> the good old days. Yes. <laughs> it's weird. It's like they don't remember the folio that they made. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. That was a companion device that didn't even get released. What? How do they think this is going to work? Also, companion devices, isn't that a thing from like, you know, 12, 13 years ago? Can you remember having companions to things? Isn't Palm a thing from 12 or 13 years ago? (laughs) This is Linux Unplugged, episode 271 for October 16th, 2018. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's playing high-fidelity sound clips over its Thunderbolt 3 port on Linux. It's amazing. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. It worked. That's our first intro. No problems, no glitches. Linux for the win. Played live off the ThinkPad as the soundboard over a Thunderbolt 3 connection into the mixer via sound interface. Just a proud milestone. All right, well, that's not what we're here to talk about. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got a bunch of community news, and then we'll ask Dan and Cassidy the hard questions about Elementary OS Juno's new release that just came out moments ago. We'll preview this week's Ubuntu 18.10, chat some hardware with Wimpy, and then we'll bring Dalton on from Ubuntu Touch and ask them about the new UbiPorts OTA 5 release. And then after we're done with that, we're going to announce our own free software project, a modest one, and we need your help naming it. And I may have found a, quote, Photoshop alternative, unquote, for Linux. And I found it in the most unlikely place. I started trying to get old Photoshop 7 under Wine. Couldn't actually find it anywhere where I could get a valid download. I mean, backup copy. Wandered off into GIMP and Inkscape and Corita for hours. And ended up on our app pick this week. And we'll do a full panel review of this potential Photoshop replacement for Linux users. But before we go any further, we got to bring in that mumble room. Time, appropriate greetings, virtual lug. Hello. 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 Whoa, that is, that is, uh, hold on, down Periscope. We got to look at this. Brandon's in there. Brent's in there. Cassidy's in there. Cubicle Nate. Dan's in there. Mr. Echo Dave. Eric Funtalis. Hello. Minimec, Popey, Sean, Techmev, and Wimpy. Hello, virtual lug. What a catch. <laughs> That is, that's such a long list. I'm almost going to have to take a breath after going through that. That is impressive. Pace yourself. We've got a huge show. We have a huge show today. We are also just doing a little public service announcement here at the top of the show. We won't be live next week. We have a very special feature edition of the Unplugged program. We're going to do a deep dive into a project we've been working on. We're going to bring on the lead developer of Pipewire and talk about the future of video and audio and what happens to Pulse Audio and all of that next week, including a review of that crazy high-performance Dell Precision 5530 laptop. So we will have an episode for you next week, but we just will not be live because I will be down at Meet BSD, which is on October 19th and 20th of 2018 in Santa Clara at the Intel campus, Wes. 
I'm going to sneak around Intel and see if I can find like the next generation processors. Make sure it has Linux support now. It might help them with some of their uh, production issues too, you know? Pretty clever. That is generous. Check their benchmarking process whilst you're there. <laughs> yeah, and maybe walk out of there with the next generation NUC too. <laughs> That'd be pretty good. So yeah, I'll be at Meet BSD next week. I don't know. I realized that I'm probably walking into a whole bunch of Linus jokes. You know, they're all going to be cracking about Linus the whole time I'm down there. Hey, Chris, how's Linus? You know, you're like gonna a, have to you're gonna have to get a thick skin just so you can you yeah, know maintain uh, relations. That's important. You're our ambassador there. Chris. I know. I know. I know. I'll have to bring like chocolate or something. I hear the BSD guys like chocolate. Well, uh, let's get into the community news. Just a quick one off the top here. Uh, not only a happy birthday, a happy 22nd birthday this week to uh, KDE, but also it seems they've received a somewhat sizable donation from the Hound Handshake Foundation, a $300,000 U.S. greenback donation. Handshake is pleased to be able to support KDE's international community of dedicated volunteers, they write. That's great for them. That is great for them. And 22nd birthday, too. Just... Uh, I don't know. A lot of good news these days. Caligra, by the way, the Caligra office suite, which is a great office suite, is going to get 100000 of that. I can't happen to notice that Gnome got just, just a little bit more money from these guys. <laughs> I don't had, know what that's about. You had, to, you had to go there. You had to go I there. I just had to. Unbelievable, Wes. Yeah, you're right, though, huh? They did. But you know what? Um, maybe that just means there's less work that needs to be done. On the plasma side? I'm let's trying. Let's go for that. Yeah, I, that, that seems plausible. <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's awkward. All right, well, let's, uh, let's change gears and talk about the brand new, fancy version 5 release of elementary OS Juno. It's here, it's refined, and it's improved. And Daniel and Cassidy from elementary OS are both here. Guys, welcome back to the Unplugged program, and congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks for having us on. This seems like maybe one of the releases you've worked the hardest on. I don't know. I, I just, maybe I've been following it a lot closer, but it really seemed like this one was a lot of effort and a lot of hustle. Yeah, it's definitely a, a huge update. And uh, I also spent a lot of time actually like documenting everything that's changed. So that also helps. Uh, yeah. yeah the, the, the post, Cassidy, is um, it's almost like one of those John Syracuse style reviews uh, that <laughs> was created in house. Like, I love it, actually. It's, it's really Thanks. in depth. Um, what system did you use? Is it a text file to track all of this, or is there actually a system you use to oh, track man. all this? Oh, uh, man. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, GitHub mostly, like just following <laughs> just along. Just look at GitHub, yep. Yeah, because we use uh, milestone planning on GitHub, so we can check the each milestone along the way and see what all issues and pull requests were submitted. So that, that helped a lot. Yeah. So um, I want to just ask you guys both a couple of questions that have been kind of lingering in the back of my mind uh, with the release of Juno on the way. I think I wanted to start with... Um, the developer side of the story. So I think one of the things that you've gained the most traction for recently is the App Center. The pay-what-you-want model has been interesting to watch. There is some really good updates in Juno where uh, you can try the app before you buy it and then be reminded to purchase it. I think that's an interesting take on that particular problem. I, I'm, and I don't know if this is a Dan or a Cassidy question, but I'm curious what the back-channel communication is like between you and the developers that are creating these apps. And... Um, in addition to that, how much expectation do you have that they'll be updated for Juno now? 
So there's a lot of uh, developers that actually hang out in our community Slack, which is super helpful. So they've kind of formed their own community there. And uh, then it's easy for us to jump in and, and talk to them uh, really quickly that way. We also have a, a Gitter channel that uh, some people are using. Um, but uh, we've used uh, GitHub issues a lot, actually, uh, during this release to, to give people information and let them know like how they can update their applications. And... Um, as of release time, uh, out of the over 100 applications that are available total, uh, 75 of those have been ported to Juno so far. Whoa. Whoa. That is significantly more than I would expect. That's awesome. And that shows some excitement in the, in the development community. So it seems like, seems like there is uh, some actual momentum there, too. That's great. Congratulations, guys. I, I think the other thing, just thinking about things that have really shifted since your last release, because you guys are... No, not really on the same release cadence that anybody else is. And so some significant things have shifted in the community since your last release. And um, I think maybe one of the more significant ones for your projects, and totally correct me if I'm wrong, is the conversation around uh, it's a macOS ripoff. It's a macOS clone. And I think it has transitioned to it's an elegant, well-designed desktop and it's a workstation desktop. And it's not just for new users, but it can work really well for new users. So that's, a, I think, and, and do, you, do you agree with that assessment? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot more nuance now. There's a little more sense of purpose and place within yeah. the great array of distros. You still got your ankle biters who are still, ah, it's a Mac ripoff, who don't really pay any attention and don't look into it. Um, but I think, for the most part, the conversation has shifted. Uh, my buddy from Coda Radio, Michael Dominic is moving over to using it as his primary day-to-day -day development platform. Because, That's awesome. Yeah, he finds it to be a nice, clean, elegant, get-out-of-his-way, just work the way he wants. And that's a pretty big shift of tone. That's a, that's a big shadow for a project to crawl out from underneath. Uh, and I don't know if you completely agree with me, but I'm curious if you guys have a sense of what the next conversation is, what the next statement is that the project needs to make. Like, what's the next hurdle, communication-wise, community perception-wise, that you see? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, focusing on privacy is always a really big, um, it's always been a big focus for us, but we're paying more attention to actually actively talking about it and kind of making that be a bigger conversation because, um, you know, as we see more cloud services, as we see more even desktop operating systems be more uh, invasive in your privacy, like that's that's super important to us that we don't do any of that. So I think that's probably one of the biggest focuses coming up. Mm. I'm curious too. Uh, along those lines, is there is there cross pollination work for, with some of the stuff you've been doing with System seventy six that's going to show up down the road too, like the installer? Yeah. So, I mean, the installer, we helped, uh, we designed and helped develop the front end for, and Pop! OS is currently shipping that. And yeah, there's been this uh, secure by default um, series, I guess, of posts that I've written and that we've been talking about. And encryption by default is a big part of that. And that's something that the installer lets us do. Uh, we're not currently shipping it because yeah. there's actually other pieces of the stack we have to, uh, you know, develop to be able to do that, like initial setup. Um, we don't use GNOME initial setup because it has a lot of GNOME dependencies. Uh -huh. So there's still some work that we have to do. Um, but yeah, getting secure and privacy by default is is a really big deal. I like that. I think that's really cool. And I'm, uh, I'd be I'd be a pretty happy camper to see the uh, home home encryption uh, land by by default. I gotta kind of be honest with you guys. The installer, although it's it's a great installer, a bunch of guys don't don't get me wrong. It, the installer does sort of feel a little out of place. On the desktop now, because the rest of it is 
Um, there's such a clear design language on the rest of it, and the installer doesn't quite follow it. And the style sheet, I don't know, it doesn't quite look right to me on that installer. And so right. I think that for the next release would be a really nice piece to replace if everything's ready. Exactly. Yeah, the current plan is um, that could be a big feature for 5.1, hopefully. So oh, that's, that's, soon. Wow. that's definitely a focus. Now, I'll tell you something else while we're in this area that would be, I think, helpful for adoption, although I understand it's a really hard problem, is something to make it a little more testable under VMs. And I think it was good like when you guys sent out an email uh, to some of us to review it, you said, by the way, it doesn't work perfectly in VMs. There's some, there's some things that won't render quite right. Uh, why is that? And is there any potential of one day fixing it so that way people that just want to try it on their machine under a VM can give it a go? Yeah, so the um, thing with that is a lot more of kind of the underlying stack. Um, the desktop environment does require some hardware acceleration for like animations and sure. things like that. And, and it the looks way great that, too. Yeah, the way that GTK handles um, the fallback when animations are disabled can sometimes uh, mean that you have like extra spaces where things are supposed to be like slide out revealed and things like that. Um, so that might be, you know, fixed um, in uh, the future stack with, you know, upcoming technologies like Vulkan, Wayland, GTK4. Like, uh, who knows? Um, that might be improved on that uh, place. But um, for us, I think a lot of those uh, issues are, are more in the underlying technology. Yeah, I thought that might be the case. You, if if, if I may, yeah, um, you'll you'll remember that um, Ubuntu is now collecting hardware metrics for people that want to share that information and we've learned that there is a large proportion of users installing the ubuntu desktop on virtual machines and i know that will cook has a vested interest in improving that experience and working upstream to land the necessary performance improvements and fixes to make the vm experience just generally better so mm. i think that's something that will improve in time yeah, that would be awesome. I know it might also be more obvious in elementary OS because we use a lot of animation and a lot of GDK revealers, which are those little animated things that kind of collapse down or expand open. So it might just be more obvious in elementary OS than other desktops because of the types of widgets that we use. But yeah, getting all those fixes upstream, that'd be, that would be great. Thanks, Wimpy. Yeah, it would be just nice for being able to do test drives, but I do totally understand that there's there's a certain experience you're trying to achieve on a modern desktop. A lot of desktops just don't perform their best under VM, so that's not an unusual, not an unusual thing either. There's a few others that I always like to catch up on you guys with. Um, also requested by my co-host Michael Dominic was he was hoping for the elevator pitch on why somebody looking to target elementary OS should bother learning Vala. Yeah, it's it's really about, and we actually gave a talk about this recently at the uh, Libra Application Summit. It's really about having the one true developer path of, you know, Vala was created by GNOME for GTK and G stack development. And so that's what we use. And it works really well for that um, using, it, it's tailor-made for our stack. Um, and really, it's it's less important about which exact language we choose it's, it's more about the fact that we have a specific language that we recommend people to use. Um, it's also just a really great, easy to understand language. It's pretty simple to read. Uh, it's if you've come from other languages like C sharp, uh, it's, it's, or Java, even it's really similar. Um, so it's, it's more about the, like the ecosystem of development around that. So there's the documentation, um, 
there's the community of other developers who are writing open source code using that one language. It just makes this whole big development ecosystem a lot better. That makes perfect sense. I always like that answer. I think that's really a solid reason. And we see, I mean, we see it on other platforms that are doing well, right? They, they do that. Now, uh, Cassidy, this is the first release, the first major release since you've been a full-time employee. How's that working out for you so far? It's so great. Is it? It's so good. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> good, I'm glad to hear that. It's so cool. Um, yeah, I've been able to spend a lot of time doing a lot of the stuff I really love, like both development and design work, but also things like writing a 7,000 word uh, release post about it and taking all the really great screenshots and stuff. So it's it's been a really great deal. I think, too, it's worth mentioning, because you guys don't get a lot of credit for this, uh, that uh, it, what appears to be a pretty polished set of re- – I mean, p- polished is not even doing it <laughs> justice – an extensive encyclopedic uh, re- set of release <laughs> notes – Honestly, if I was a super fan of this OS and I had been waiting and waiting and watching the countdown, to be able to read through this would be very rewarding. And it's, it's of course, like everything you guys do, it itself is well laid out and well formatted with great visuals. This, the, the, the prettiest screenshots on the internet. Uh, and I, <laughs> I like the way you do this because it allows the reader to just appreciate and examine that element of the UI and this also extends into the press kit that they send out to some folks uh, that uh, sign up for it. And in there is also like a, a, re- a resource of screenshots where they'll zoom in on a particular element of the UI. So you can just sit there and really kind of appreciate how well it's thought out. Because when you see it on your screen with three or four other windows and the toolbar and the dock, it's sort of just one of the many details. But when you take these applications that are on elementary OS and you isolate components of their interface, you can you can appreciate really how well designed they are. And this and this press kit is just really, really well done with cautions about the VM and other explanations in there about the features. And so from end to end, this has felt like one of the most professional releases of a software product, not of a Linux distribution, not of an open source project, but of a software product. And I think you guys have nailed it at a level of professionalism that is um, up, it's, it's rare for the industry in general. So my hat's off on the back-end organization and effort for the Juno release. It's exceptional. Thank Thanks, you man. so much. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. Well, guys, um, you know, just to make everything easy in our show notes, we've uh, direct link to the ISOs. Uh, so that way uh, people can just uh, bypass the website uh, altogether. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding, of course. <laughs> I, saw, I saw your tweet to DistroWatch this morning and I thought, oh, what are they doing? Perfect. What are they doing? Of course, Elementary OS is a crowdfunded effort. And there's multiple ways you can do that. One of the options is to kick them a few bucks when you go download the ISO. And even if it's just something you try out, I think it's worth kicking them a few bucks because they're doing something nobody else is doing, and they're doing it really well. That's a new standard, I think. On a lot of fronts, on how you communicate with developers, on how they should build tools, on how to distribute applications for your platform, how they can monetize those applications. They're literally one of the few app centers or app stores in the entire market that has figured out a way to do demos. I don't know why Apple and Google and Microsoft haven't been able to figure out this system, but somehow these guys over at Elementary OS figured it out. Plus, the whole thing is exceptionally well-designed, and they've been doing this for a while now. So this is multiple releases in, and it deserves that 5.0. It really does. I think it deserves that 5 number, and I... I just think it's a great release. So even if you don't stick with it, I think it's worth kicking them a few bucks. So go check it out. We will have links to the website and the announcement 
in the show notes. Congratulations, guys. Good release. Thank you. I hope you guys get some rest. And as long as you get all the bugs fixed, the people report right away. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and if you want to go get more Dan and, and, and maybe understand the hype around the Plasma desktop or hear Dan's thoughts on it, which, again, was another I – thought, I thought that was really well done too. Dan did an analysis of some of the UI quirks of Plasma that bother him. And Popey offered a really solid rebuttal to a lot of it. And the conversation, I thought, was great, especially as a Plasma user. Uh, and it was in user error 50. You can check it out at error.show slash 50. That's error, not air. Error.show slash 50, where they break down all the plasma hype as well as a few great uh, hashtag ask air questions and uh, some some heavy topics. Oh, yeah. Some heavy it's topics. A, it's a wild episode, that it's, one, but great. It's good. I got an email into the show from listener Alan with an E. He says, love the show. It's now my number one go-to for all the Linux things. I have a question that I'm hoping you can answer for me. I'm fairly new to the Linux community, and recently I saw a website that's come out saying that Flatpak is a security risk and shouldn't be used. I've heard it referenced on your show a few times, and it seems like it's a way to install software. I was wondering if you could alleviate some confusion as, or should I discontinue the use of Flatpaks? Is this an internet hoax or a security risk? Alan. Uh, that's a... That's honestly a pretty good question. It There's is. been a lot of things up in the air, and if you don't really understand the technology, if you're not using it or you haven't looked at this, the source code behind it, how, how could you know? Yeah, a website uh, recently came out, flatkill.org, where it went after flat packs for inadequate sandboxing practices and shipping out-of-date libraries. The author, which is a really common mistake, though, attributed it this, these flaws to flat packs it themselves instead of how the developers have packaged them, as if this developer, or as if this author of the blog post was unaware that this is how maybe potentially hundreds of thousands of Docker images ship. This is how some packages are in the Debian repo right now. Like, this is not a new problem to software. This has been a problem with software for a long time. And this is, I, I believe, made worse when you have volunteers packaging the software instead of the developers directly packaging it themselves. Um, so flat kill takes off. It goes all over the typical places. And I just saw people shitting on the Flatpak concept and on Snap packages. And I, I can't believe on October 16th of 2008, we have to have a minute where Chris explains the reason we need universal packaging. I can't believe that people still don't get this. And I think it's because everybody is so self-obsessed that they can't figure that there could be problems out there that they've never witnessed. And they have, in, they have no ability to empathize with anybody else on the internet, it appears. I mean, I'm just, you know, projecting a bit here, but it seems to be the case. Experience holds up. <clears throat> Besides sandboxing, which is a nice aspect, if you configure it correctly, of flat packs or isolation, whatever you want to call it, even if you just look at that, that itself is a nice improvement. But creating an API system, creating a portal system for Wayland, that way you can get access on, in Wayland environments where everything is sandboxed, that way you can get access to hardware and devices. This is all necessary. And you can't just say because you have a sandbox, then you have 100% security anyways. Security is a multi-layered thing. You don't just put locks on your doors, you also put locks on your windows, right? Because you have to, security is many things and sandboxing is a component. And if one of those many things is bogus, that doesn't mean the entire thing is bogus, especially if it's not an implementation or especially if it is an implementation detail and it's not like a core fundamental flaw with flat packs. But let's talk about flat packs and the specific desktop app problem space. Because really, I think when we think about this, we think about the servers, but 
The security position on the desktop to begin with is horrible. Anything in your session basically has complete access to everything belonging to your user. Think about the way an X11 system traditionally works. Even with these limitations on a traditional Linux desktop, Flatpak still brings security, like default sandboxing, IPC filtering. A new file system, too. Don't forget that process and UID namespacing, setcom filtering, and an immutable user and app directory. I think it's also worth highlighting some of the other reasons why Flatpak exists at all to begin with, or why other universal packaging formats do. It allows apps to become agnostic of their underlying distribution, so you can have something that maybe has dependencies on GTK2, and you don't have to have GTK2 installed system-wide to or run that. Or that suddenly you won't be able to update anymore because you, you broke your package manager. That's right. Also, you're separating the release update cadence of the distribution from the application. This is a point that we heard from Frank of OwnCloud and now NextCloud over and over again, that old, vulnerable versions of their PHP-based application were still being shipped in the distro repositories while they still had, while they had brand new ones available for download off their website. The issue is the distribution doesn't update the repos as often as NextCloud updates. But if they're shipping them as a universal application like a snap, they can update the snap when they want. It also disintermediates the app developers from the users when you have it that way. When you, when, when you have the distribution in control of the software, then the developer really is disconnected completely from the end user. The developer doesn't really have any idea of how many installs under Linux they are. We've heard this from LibreOffice. They say, yeah, we have a few, you know, we have a few numbers from our website and a few mirrors, but if users install LibreOffice from the distros, we really don't have any idea of how many installs we have out there on Linux. So we don't know where to weigh it necessarily because not all of it checks in, not all of it is being pulled from our servers. And it decentralizes the distribution of applications. If you can distribute something like Plex Server as a snap, it is not an Ubuntu-specific thing that has now happened. Last week, Plex announced that the Plex server is now available as a snap. It's in the beta channel right now. It's a beta version of Plex server, and you can install it from a snap and have Plex installed and ready to go. That's incredible. And it's not an Ubuntu-specific thing. Canonical did the legwork with the relationship to help them make that happen. And in the past, before this kind of thing, it would have been an Ubuntu-only technology. It would have been a PPA or a Deb. The people would have had to have guides to get working on Arch and get working on Fedora. And now it is a freaking snap. It's, it's, it's not in an Ubuntu repo. It's, and the same thing is true with flat packs and app images. It's not like flat packs are perfect, but they solve problems. Same with snaps, same with app images. And to crap on the concept is to pretend like the existing way to distribute software on Linux has been sufficient. It has not been. We wouldn't be having this conversation if it had been. And it's anti-intellectual to blame the core technology for the developer's bad actions. I think it's frustrating with the tone, too, right? Because, as you just said, Flatpak isn't perfect, but it's a, it's a progression. We're trying to get better. We're trying to have more options for sandboxing, for understanding what resources an application might need and it, it should be allowed to have on your computer. And yes, you can do that poorly. You cannot implement sandboxing. You can leave things too open. 
And we should we should be aware of that. We should be aware that, yes, when you do ship all your dependencies bundled together, sometimes they don't get updated. But that's already a problem in these platforms, right. and we should talk about it, but we don't need to throw the whole thing out. How many, how many Windows systems have old DLLs that get sprayed onto their hard drive when you run the install wizard? Or all Macs DMG ever. files that probably ship with old libraries in them. I'm curious what Popey thinks, though, about my wild assertion that this is going to be more of a problem whenever you have volunteer curated uh, flat packs or snaps and that it really kind of relies on the software shop to integrate the packaging into their production pipeline. Well, first of all, I'd say it's really unfortunate that the person who had issues with flat pack decided to create a website and a ill-informed bit of copy on a, on a web page and try and brand it as some security nightmare. I think that's a yeah. Really, not the way to go. No, if, if you want to, if you want, you, you can engage with the developers and talk to them about the issues you have. Um, you know, supply code is the absolutely best way to go, but otherwise, supply bugs or test cases to prove the things you're trying to illustrate are are wrong. But I think the way they went about it was just completely wrong, and it really stirred up the whole sentiment against some of these package systems which are trying to solve problems as I you agree. see like I agree. as you say all, all all of them are trying to solve similar problems in different ways and this just wasn't really helpful at all 100% agree with you you nailed it now my question though is do you think that i mean there the, the one fundamental truth that we we could find in here is developers may uh, lackadaisically configure their sandbox requirement, and GNOME software could do a better job of alerting users of weak sandboxes. I installed a snap today via Discover on the latest Plasma, and I actually got a warning that it was an unconfined snap, and it asked me if I was okay continuing. That is, see, that's slick. Yeah, that, you should be asked. That's how it should work. Right. So, so there's some there's some obvious like areas for improvement, or not not packaging really old libraries or failing to update them, which seems like that is a volunteer issue. There's a lot of things that need to catch up. It's, you know, the guys who are working on FlatHub and AppImage and SnapD and all the other, all these other technologies, there's a whole load of legacy that they're, they're trying to drag through into the 21st century. And some of that is some of the software stores don't understand the concept of confinement. And so they need to know how to present to the user and make it uh, possible for the user to make those decisions, like whether that's in badges or little verified ticks or however that's represented to the user so the user can make an informed decision exactly the same way as you do on your mobile phone. You go into the Android store, you start looking at reviews, you look at how many downloads this thing has. Does it look like it's come from a reputable developer or is this like Mr. Joe Smith in <laughs> you know some random country in Middle Asia? Like it, you you need to empower users with the ability to make decisions to control their own computer and control what software they put on their computer. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it easier for, for users to make those decisions. And sometimes we're not quite there. Things like GNOME software doesn't quite present the information we'd like, which is why we had a design sprint a few weeks ago and our designers are working with the upstream GNOME software developers to improve that situation. So it's all, it's in progress, but we, it's not, right. it's not that we just haven't arrived at that final destination. And I'm not sure we will anytime soon. It's a rocky road yeah. and we're all on it and we're all on it together. There's no point us fighting. That's why this flatkill.org or whatever it was, was not helpful because it is, no. it is in progress. And it, it really is, it is sort of a shame because the, the issue, I, the reason why I'm sensitive to it and the reason why I say it's a bit of a shame is because I've, I've heard a lot 
over the years via different methods of feedback over the different shows that distributing applications on Linux is a daunting of enough challenge that a lot of developers look at it and go, meh, nah, not worth we it. We talk about that all the time. People driven away are just scared to even figure out what's happening. I mean, think about right. that. That's, the, that's the, where they stop. I can't even figure out how to properly distribute downloads from my website in a way that's guaranteed to work across most of the distributions. I can give you a use case. Um, a while ago, uh, we, we were approached by a software developer, and they had an application that worked on Windows, worked on Mac, and they got a prototype working on Linux, but they didn't know how to distribute it. And we worked through building a snap but yeah they could have they could have chosen any technology they just happened to have chosen snap and we worked with them to get that in the store and they had to really sell it to their senior management because their senior management was not convinced that linux users would pay for software or would pay for their subscription service and they weren't sure that it was worth the time to invest to port the application i mean it didn't need porting because it's all python and cute and like really it was it was easy to port it was just do we want to support it on, right. on linux and it turns out they get better technical uh, reports, bug reports from Linux users. They get better feedback from Linux users and better engagement from Linux users. And yes, they, those people do turn into subscribers. So they are making money out of customers who are running Linux. So it, it does work. It can work. Um, and we can help make it easy for developers who are building software to bring their software to Linux users. It, it's not perfect, but we, we're certainly getting there. I hope so, and uh, and it feels like we've made a ton of progress in that direction, and it's a huge deal to have Plex server available as a snap. That's one of those things that has, I think, converted a few folks to Linux. Like, all right, I'll set up a Linux rig in my garage or in my office, and I'll try to get. Right, yeah, that's one of the first things people want to do, but it's mm -hmm. kind of been a pain to get going before. Yeah, I mean, it's, if you're if you're not really familiar with Linux at all, it's sort of daunting. Now it's a snap command. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I, I was uh, pontificating with Wes earlier today that uh, I really feel like we're at a point where for a lot of lot of us that have been using Linux a long time professionally, there and I, obviously this is broad strokes, but for me, I've, I've landed on a spot where I feel like there's two desktops that are uh, right for a lot of us. And I know I'm gonna, a lot of people are going to disagree with me on this, but just go with me. I think one of our greatest desktops surprise, surprise, is Plasma if you are willing to invest some time into setting it up. I think it's a really great utility workstation. It's a workhorse system. It's kind of that classic Linux application style where like, it has all the right technical fundamentals. It's a powerhouse, but you got to get to know it and you got to put in the time. And you still find, you know, you could be using it a couple of months in and still find new features. And you're like, oh man, I've been waiting for computers to do that. That's great. I didn't even know that was there. Oh, I'm surprised I couldn't find that before. Like it's not maybe like surfaced super well. Um, and then, and I'm not just saying that because they're here, I think on the other end, you have elementary OS, which is more of a complete cohesive package, where Plasma is a workstation desktop interface that you can put on any distribution. Elementary OS is really best as a whole. And you're really not changing and tweaking your themes. You could like, so in code, you could change it from a light theme to a dark theme. Like there's a few areas where you can customize, but it really is a very well thought out, refined out of the box experience. That's not really meant to be heavily modified. That's what's good about it. It's meant to just get down to work. And you have these two really, these two on the really, I think far spectrums of each other. And in there, 
ironically, as the maybe the most popular desktop environment is GNOME Shell. As time goes on, uh, GNOME Shell has has improved, especially uh, in the last year or so. It seems like it's gotten a lot better, but things still need to get fixed up. And one of the big changes that I think will be really hard for users to process is the eventual removal of the GTK theme support. That seems to be the direction we're going in, and there's a lot of really good reasons for it. As a lot of people like Joey at OMG Ubuntu are putting it, GTK3 themes don't actually exist. It is an irony, really, because there are so many beautiful gnome shell themes. The new 1810 theme is great. Yaru, and uh, it's yeah. it's really nice. You it, know, it's it almost beautiful. works. It's so it's it's close, and people have been clever. People have managed to hack this together so that you get something that that largely works. But that doesn't mean it's how it should be. So this the way it actually kind of comes down, and this is from T- Tobias Bernard, who's written a well reasoned article uh, over on his blog. Writes that. Um, Essentially, what it comes down to is GTK themes are exploiting a flaw rather than standards. There's no API. And here's a quote. There is no clearly defined theming API. There are CSS style sheets, but they were only ever meant to be used by the platform and app developers. The platform style sheet is called Edwadia, uh, and that is for a reason, um, which uh, Yaru is, or how do you pronounce it? Uh, Yaru? Yaru? Whatever the Ubuntu 18, oh, 1810 theme is, is based off of Edwadia. Um, but essentially, themes are a hack. They're, they're kind of a, um, an attempt to graft on a new look on top of GNOME 3. And there is inconsistency throughout. It's sort of like papering over cracks, really. And then when you launch things like Electron Apps or Firefox, you see little areas where it's not quite perfect. There's no really best standards to adhere to. App developers have no idea what theme is being smashed onto their app, so they can't plan for that. And app developers then have to fix the bugs that only appear in those custom themes. So then they get the bug reports. And then the theme devs have to patch around bugs and app updates when they find them, which probably is pretty hit and miss. It's, it's actually pretty busted right now. And a lot of, well, I mean, all of the themes really that you see out there in GNOME 3 land are all based off of other themes because the hard work is actually getting it to work. You got to go in and raw dog hack the CSS of the GNOME shell. Which are used by other things, and that's a huge API, very easy to cause conflicts. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm really dying to ask Cassidy or Daniel about this because to me this is a problem that doesn't exist on elementary OS, and it's a problem that desktops like Plasma plan for, and they do have a system and support for it baked in. Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have elementary OS that just really sort of opted to just come up with your own look. And as a result of that, developers know what to expect, and there is a consistent look. Uh, but it did strike me that, boy, it'd be nice if I could have a system-wide dark mode on elementary OS. It, I, I, I had an itch to tweak a few things. I think because I'm a longtime Linux user, that just is what I come to expect. Elementary OS is, in a sense, making some hard design decisions for the user that Plasma would let me fiddle with all day. Yeah, I think uh, I agree completely with Tobias's stance here. And um, 
just the fact that we don't uh, put any style sheet settings up there and we make sure that all of our developers are um, publishing their screenshots using the system style sheet and configuration does a couple things. And one, it empowers them to do custom styling that doesn't look non-native or doesn't break. Uh, some of the most popular apps in the store have done really, really interesting things with GTK CSS that they would never be able to do if they had to uh, assume that their application could be styled any which way. Yeah, the buttons may be somewhere you completely unexpect or may not light up the way you expect or have a text color you expect. Yeah, so they've been able to do a lot of interesting things with their own visual style and branding, which makes these apps like feel really refined and cool. Uh, but it also helps when you go into App Center and you're looking at screenshots of all the applications, what you see is what you get. Uh, it's never going to be some random style sheet pictured in the screenshots, and then when you download it, the app doesn't look like that. Like, you always get what you pay for. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. I hadn't even thought about that you could be looking at an app that has a totally, like in my case, it would undoubtedly have a light theme. And then I would install it in my box and launch it as a dark theme. It immediately is different than the picture. <laughs> I, you know, that's not something that weirds me out, but I could see it weirding out some folks or, or you know, not meeting expectations. Yeah, well, especially when you've paid money for an application and then you download it and there's some great, like, broken visual thing with it. Then you you feel like, you know, this is supposed to be a quality product that I, I paid the developer to get this and it's broken out of the box. Wimpy, can I ask you about Mate? Is Are themes implemented differently on uh, that era of the Mate desktop? How, how does that work over there? Or is it an, is it an ugly hack too? No, it, it's not an ugly hack. It's taking advantage of the facilities that exist in GTK3 in order to use style classes to style widgets. Right, which is how it do, is done on Qt too, essentially. Yeah, which is, you know, much the same way that the elementary folks do things, although they prescribe a style sheet that that is part and parcel of the API of designing, you know, your elementary application. So in elementary, you get this prescribed, consistent user experience. And in Mate, because we appeal to an audience that are used to having multiple themes and the ability to customize things to their heart's content, we have multiple themes that implement style classes in different ways to change the look and feel of the desktop. So the issue here is specifically what with GNOME? Is it the, in the, in the write-up, I noticed particular focus on client-side decorations and the header bars seem to be a major source of issue. So is it these shell-side things that uh, is really the problem? It's not the actual GTK3 applications? Maybe Dan and Cassidy can answer this better, but I suspect that GNOME are running into a position that Elementary solved long ago, which is... AdWaiter on GNOME is part of the API of the GNOME shell and the GNOME desktop experience, mm. but people using GNOME are still in the mindset that this is a configurable, dynamically themable thing. Yeah, I think the hard part, especially for GNOME, is that there is no GNOME OS. So the the most popular shipped GNOME desktop is Ubuntu right now, right? So it's not even shipping their uh, intended visual styles. So when people are writing applications against GNOME, they're not even really writing against Adwaita. Yeah, it's interesting that that that's the case now, and now this conversation is relevant. I think that's interesting. I wonder if this conversation would be coming up if it was Fedora that was shipping as the largest GNOME desktop. As Dan says, people are targeting effectively Ubuntu. It, like the 
predominantly they're not they're not targeting gtk or q at all predominantly they're using electron the the significant number of developers out there are not writing GTK or Q applications. Electron uses a little GTK in there, I think, just a, a bit. Tiny, tiny little bit. <laughs> no, the Electron have their own developer s- knows that. No. <laughs> right. right. That's just an implementation detail. No reason to concern yourself. Well, that that's fair, but I think like we've experienced issues where Chromium just didn't uh, Chromium and Chrome, when you maximized it, didn't have window controls for months. And they shipped it like that because they only tested it against Ubuntu and it worked in Ubuntu. And that was like how it worked in Ubuntu. And that was great. And then uh, on other desktops, like it didn't work. So I think even if they're not writing in, um, you know, GTK, they're still testing against Ubuntu. I'm curious to know how the world goes on if, uh, if we do go to a one theme world. I mean, we essentially are now, but nobody follows it. So I don't know what they could do to make it a one-theme world, uh, but that seems to be the direction of the conversation is make it Edwadia, and then everybody knows what they're getting. Is this a one-theme world for all of Linux or a one-theme world for GNOME? Yeah, right, exactly, for, for GNOME. Well, for Fedora, basically. Well, that's just it. Seems to me that Sam Hewitt made a blog post about this a while ago about how mm-hmm. GNOME needs to make mm-hmm. a, a theming API mm-hmm. rather yeah. than just, yeah. you know, screw everybody, we're doing it this way. Right. Well, the problem is that we had something like that with GTK2, and it turned out that it was really restrictive. And now we have this great API that's great for application developers, but it's bad when users touch it. Like, it empowers developers to have more uh, expressive API available, but it also makes the applications more fragile when users try to pull those styles out from underneath them. So the, the reason why this is back up today is Tobias Bernard, uh, over on one of his gnome, uh, over one of the blogs.gnome.org, wrote a really good post on why these themes do not work. And he showed a lot of examples. Unfortunately, our friends over at System76 kind of take a beating because he shows out a lot of inconsistencies in Pop! OS's theme where certain certain buttons don't light up, a, a block is hanging off randomly off the header bar. Uh, and when he zooms in on it, you can really kind of see the, the difficulties. And then he shows some examples of... Uh, some things coming down the road in Nautilus that just don't even render properly at all in the theme um, because, you know, the theme's going to have to be tweaked now to support that new feature in GTK3. Uh, and he at the end of it, he basically devastates uh, themes. He really does. Like, he's like, he's, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ironclad case here. And it seems to me that, and he even addresses, like, the, the users want themes. And I, I admit, I'm one of them. That's kind of one of the things I like about Plasma is I have all those theme options and I can just download them right off the thing and install them and try them. Um, so the conversation is continuing. And I, I, I have a sense it would be good for GNOME and the, quote, GNOME platform, end quote, but I don't understand how it would be good for downstream distributions that want to have a different look and feel to, so that way it, it looks and feels like uh, Antigros or it looks and feels like Ubuntu. Like, you gotta, you got to tweak it a little bit. I think, I mean, that's always been the case. Maybe everybody could ship the same exact looking GNOME shell, but I just don't see it. And there's no a formal facility, there's no formal API that they could be shutting down here because they never created one. So people can just make the same hacks they've always been making. So I don't really quite understand how they would even enforce it. But the conversation's getting louder, and I, I find it to be fascinating. And I say, if you're going to make Adwadi the default, you better keep investing in it, keep making it look great. But it's a great post, and uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. If you want to look at the examples, and if you are 
you know, concerned about this at all, I, I really encourage you to read the post. We'll have, we'll have OMG Ubuntu's a summary of it, and then we'll have a direct link to the blog post too. In the show notes, linuxunplugged.com slash 271. Let's keep moving though. We got a lot more to get into. We got much more. Um, a new version of DXVK is out this week. It features some great improvements and support for great new games that were either supported before and broke or needed uh, fixes like Assassin's Creed and Bioshock and Dark Souls 3. Some really good stuff in here. And also uh, today, the uh, folks over at Crossover Office released Crossover 18, which includes their uh, DXVK support, which is support for Vulkan. Um, takes uh, what is it? Takes DirectX calls and translates them to Vulkan. Direct Direct Three D Ten and Thank Eleven. You. Thank you. Thank you. Ba-boom. So that's in crossover now too. So they had another release this week. So that's that's congratulations that's a lot to of them. Hot new tech. Linux Academy is trying something kind of adorable, and I thought I'd give a shout out to that. If you are carving pumpkins with the kids, which uh, we we do it now, two rounds of pumpkin carvings. That's that's because so we got a practiced hand. Oh yeah. Oh, I am. I am the best gut. Are you putting? Are you putting tucks on there? You got a tux pumpkin yet? What's happening? That is such a good idea. I can't believe I never. No, I did an owl pumpkin last week. Oh yeah, for the little one. Um, and uh, I didn't. I didn't even think of this, but Linux Academy is doing a, a pumpkin carving contest. If you want to win some gems, which you can cash in for swag, I think you just hit them up at hashtag Jack on Linux. And oh, that's funny because we're going to be doing some Jack oh. on Linux stuff. Oh, Jack O Linux, Jack O Linux. I'll put a link in the show notes. If you're carving pumpkins and want to win some swag, uh, why not? Why not? I should have thought that. I. You know what I did? And you guys can rip this off, and maybe you'll win some sw- swag. Is um, my uh, middle child wanted to do a Pinocchio pumpkin? So we carved, we looked up the picture on the phone, you know, and, and kept it there while we were carving it. But then the stroke of genius was busted off the stem off the top of the pumpkin and rammed it in the nose hole. So it's got a Pinocchio nose from Whoa. the stem. It's, uh, it, was, it was a pro move. Also, just one more quick one this week. Chrome OS in the stable channel is now getting Linux app support. It seems like a huge deal. And the folks over at linuxjournal.com decided, well, let's install GNOME software and then play around with that. <laughs> and they ended up getting that installed. And so they could just browse GNOME software. They got GIMP installed. It is a Chromebook world out there, Wes. You should get one. You, you know, you'd be hip down in Seattle with a Chromebook. Oh, yes, I would. Do you, do you actually see many Chromebooks in Seattle? Not really. No, no. I haven't ever, actually ever seen one. <laughs> now that I think about it, I've never seen one. <laughs> Uh, but you should still get one. It's weird to see it like when you look at them installing it and it just says, installing Linux. Yeah. Yeah, like, that what is a weird. weird. What a weird message. But, hey, I mean, stable, it's a big deal. It actually means people might use it now. Well, speaking of Microsoft, oh, wait, no, that's that's just what Google's turning into. Well, speaking of actual Microsoft, huge news that everybody's been talking about is that they contributed 60,000 patents to the Open Innovation Network. And I gotta say that the, the as always, the response has been wide ranging, but the overall I think response has been tremendously positive. I, I have seen, I still am seeing tweets and people in the chat room and people in the Telegram group going, "Wow, they really have changed. They really have changed. Wow, this is this is it right here. This is the big change. It is pretty massive." Have I talked to you at all about this? What are your thoughts on Microsoft contributing sixty thousand patents to the Open Innovation Network? Do you think it changes anything practically? I mean, I think it had been it had been hanging out there. It had been a little bit awkward, right? Because we've seen the Microsoft Loves Linux campaign for a couple of years now. We've seen their big open source pushes. This sort of felt like a little bit of that old management still there, or the the mean corporate Microsoft, and it's, you know, well, we still got our patent war and that whole Android situation. So 
it, it kind of just feels like an act of good faith, a, a sort of like, we don't need to play on this level anymore, and uh, let's just compete on software. Yeah, but Wimpy, isn't this just uh, a, a long play to do the embrace part before you extinguish? No. <laughs> All right. You're Very good. Here we have it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's settled. I'm not going to indulge any negativity around this subject. <laughs> I think this is remarkable that, that Microsoft have, have contributed so many patents to the OIN and is the most significant evidence that we can point to that there is definitely a cultural change, um, not just happening, but that has happened within Microsoft. I agree. These kinds of things inside companies this size take a lot of people internally to make it happen. Yeah, exactly. There I, were a lot of cogs involved. I'd be fascinated to know how this started. Where was the where's the advocacy coming from? So we were going to ask that. I did invite um, a couple of folks on the show. They both attempted to make it work, but were traveling and uh, couldn't come on the show today. I was going to ask them that. So if I get the opportunity in the future, though, I think this story is big enough. I, I may still try to take them up on that when they're done. Although then we're running into holidays. Uh, but it is a it is a hell of an of a, a move by a company that uh, was once considered at war with Linux, and it is true that it really only protects people in the open innovation network. That innovation network is free to join, and it's it's a massive statement. It's really also a messaging to developers that you can use these core technologies, the core technologies that, by the way, power Azure. You can use those to build your devices and you can hook them all the way up through the Microsoft's tools chain and we, we're not going to come after you. That's really what the message is here and this is how they're signaling it. That's really what this is about. It's about signaling, it's about positioning and uh, I'm, I, I welcome it. I say congratulations. Huge story to them. And uh, will they, will they uh, stop uh, going after Android XFAT use? Who knows? Who knows? But it doesn't really matter. I think this is a good... It, you, that separate would be great to see them stop doing that. But separate of that, this is still a great move. I remember the days when I would talk with Jeremy from the Samba Project, and he would tell me how paranoid they were constantly of Microsoft coming after them. I can only imagine. And then the mono, remember around mono, the oh, paranoia yeah. around mono? I had to lose my Tomboy over all that. Tomboy was one of the best note-taking applications for desktop Linux back in the day. But it had the one sin of being a mono-based application. And then there was that... I don't know, what would you call it, Popey? There was like a like a mandate to rid mono of, across Linux, right? Yep, there was. And sadly, some of those people worked at Canonical and celebrated when mono was removed from the ISO. That may be very, very sad indeed. And it was all out of fear of Microsoft's patent aggression. That's what it was all based it was out of. Completely mental. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now here we are, and it never materialized, and they've contributed 60,000 patents to a patent consortium that uh, protects people that use Linux technologies. <laughs> just weird. It's great, though. It's great. Also great is this week, in just a few hours from this recording, especially from the release of this recording, Ubuntu 18.10 will be out. Is the Cosmic Cuttlefish. And it's got that brand new theme we were just talking about and uh, the latest uh, performance improvements to GNOME and GNOME 3.30. And I, I kind of feel like, you know, in a big way, it's the best looking, best performing Ubuntu I have ever used. Couldn't believe it when I loaded it up. Uh, and, and it had been a while since I was using GNOME too. So it was also like my first back into GNOME. And it, oh man, oh man, if it didn't make me kind of go, this is nice. You had that same experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, it kind of feels like uh, really hitting the stride after 1804, and then now things are just getting more polished, and they fit together better, and it's faster, and finally we're at home in Gnome as much as we can be. 
It's really nice. Super, super smooth, really good looking. And um, there's still a few areas that uh, long term I'd, I'd love to see changed, but I think it's I think it's I think it's one of the one of the best implementations. What are they? Well, honestly, I'd love to see the installer redone. I'm just getting I don't know. I'm just, I feel like it just feels a little uh, it's it does fine, but the last part where it's installing packages and all of that, uh, like that the whole the terminal box is is cramped and tiny. The status information is not very useful. Like it just it just feels like it could use a retouch a little bit and. I don't know. It's not horrible, but it feels a little out of date these days compared to what some other distro installers look like. Now, there's a, there's a lot of installers that are a lot worse, so it's not a huge complaint because it's on the average pretty good. But I think Ubiquiti has stood the test of time, and yeah. everything else is just catching up a bit now. Yeah, I think it just needs a little catch up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, also, I think it would be super cool to see a, a little nod towards some kind of like smartphone integration. I just think that's a good end user feature. Uh, so like GS Connect or something like that in there out of the box would be pretty, pretty sweet. Some other features around that too I think would be kind of nice, like integrating with people's workflows and stuff. I think Canonical too could be in a good position to work with upstream cloud providers to have more account integration. I feel like that's something that would be really nice if I could easily log in and get my calendar and my contacts and all of that synced down. I know that's been a long-term hope thing, but... It'd be really nice to see that because that's something you do get on like Chrome OS or you will get on the on the Chrome OS tablet and stuff like that. You get it with Outlook and whatnot. More people expect the cloud to be sort of first class in their operating system. But out of the box, beautiful, fast. Uh, I didn't really have much more takeaway than that because it's not only is it not out yet, so I don't want to give it the full review, but I've only had a few days with it. But damn, uh, really well done. Wimpy or Popey, is there anything in particular with the 1810 cycle that you want to call out? Uh, I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> anything or anything with Mate too, Ubuntu Mate. Well, Popey, <laughs> do you wanna do you wanna answer for Ubuntu? So from Ubuntu, I I'm one of those people who always try and stick to the LTS and then something comes along in the release after the LTS and it really makes me want to upgrade. Yes, yes. But and I'm sorry to do this, the fact that we now have snaps, I generally don't need to do that because I don't <laughs> need to upgrade. I can stay on the LTS and I can get all the new applications. So I'm actually definitely staying on the LTS. I love I love the work the desktop team are doing, but I'm sticking with 1804. Fair enough. I actually think uh, you could be on 1604 for the most part and not really feel it these days. Right. It's kind of funny. It's totally it's a changed. a different world mm-hmm. from two years ago. This is This is the lunch conversation that Wes and I had. Exactly. Wes was like, yeah, I just don't know if I want to stick with an LTS because it usually starts to feel stale. I'm like, yeah, back in the day, I'd feel like a distribution was stale three months after release. But today I could be on 1604 and I wouldn't even feel it. It really is. It really is true. Well, what about that Ubuntu Mate there, Wimpy? Any uh, thing you want to call out for the 1810 release? So the 1810 release, curiously, is really got an eye on what will become Ubuntu 1804.2. So one of the things that um, I've been making representation for within the Ubuntu project, uh, you know, with the help of the likes of Will Cook, is to land the necessary drivers to have a really good AMD GPU experience yes. out of the box nice. in 1810. Yes. yes, Because the hardware stack that exists in 1810 is what will become the hardware enablement stack in 1804.2. So we've lined everything up so that that stack is in a good place. And therefore, you know, that's what's coming to 1804.2. And from the Mate point of view, 
all of the work has been in Upstream Mate to fix lots of bugs in Mate itself, which all now exist in Ubuntu Mate 18.10. And that's a prerequisite, having all of those fixes in 18.10. You have to have all of your fixes in the current release in order for them to be candidates for what's called SRU'd back to 18.04. So all of the setup for 18.10 is work to make an 18.04.2 that has got lots of fixes and better hardware support in it. Hold on a second here. Hold on a second here. So in a way, what you're saying is you could view the dot, like the intermediary release between an LTS, like the dot 10, like the 18.10 release in this case, as a cycle to build proper backports to 18.04? Yes, and certainly, you know, what? so 16.04 was my first LTS with Ubuntu Mate, and we didn't do a great job of actually delivering fixes back to 16.04, and I've learned from that. So I've used this 18.10 cycle as a means to collect up those fixes to then start delivering them back. Now, I'm not saying you have to wait all the time until 1804.2. They'll start drip feeding out now. But by the time 1804.2 comes out in February, all of that stuff should have been backported and and available. Hmm. That's cool. I love hearing that because that means that if I just want to stay on the previous install that I'm happy with, I still get all the goodies that I really care about. And then for fun, I've um, uh, so this this is a little um, look at how the sausage is made. I've I've decided to do a little side project for Ubuntu Mate for eighteen ten. So as we record this in in two days from now, eighteen ten is released, and I will be releasing bespoke images for the GPD Pocket and the GPD Pocket Two hey, yo. alongside no. the, uh, the the official releases. So yeah. you got your hands on the new GPD Pocket. How does it run on there? How does everything run? The GPD Pocket 2 is a huge improvement over the GPD Pocket uh, in every in every respect. So um, in terms of what it has inside it, it's equivalent to um, a Mac Air book in terms of CPU, <laughs> wow. RAM, and oh, all on, the rest Apple. of it. Yeah. <laughs> Boy. Yeah, it's the, same, it's the same CPU package and everything. Wow. That, and the, only, and that's the thing bad. that's peculiar about those, if you're not familiar, these are... Um, milled aluminium um, netbook style devices so they're seven inch screens although ridiculously they're 1920 by 1200 displays seven inch displays so effectively they're high dpi because of the size of the screen and the pixel density (laughs) um so I've I've prepackaged these with the necessary and also the the screens are rotated so you know if you don't make any accommodation for the hardware you get the screen displayed in the wrong um perspective so these images have got the necessary rotations for the screen and uh, uh. also the necessary rotations for the touch dis- touch display otherwise you know where you touch doesn't <laughs> level up with the actual display itself and things like um changing the font size of the console font so if you do switch to a tty you can actually read it and um you know rotating uh the frame buffer so that uh you know when you're looking at grub for example you know that sort of stuff is correct and and I, i've i've landed a, a curious little tweak in the ubuntu mate image which is to use um 
some funky features of the X server to do some um, scaling. So obviously 1920 by 1200 on a seven inch display is teeny tiny. But if you enable high DPI, it's too big because you effectively get a um, sort of 960 by 600 display you know, effective resolution, which is too small. So, so I've used a quirk of the, the X server to scale that. So you get something that's representative, like um, 1280 by 800 effective resolution. So it's still big enough to be useful, but also um, large enough that you can actually see and use. And that's hidden just behind a tick box. So if you don't like that, you can just turn it off and get the full native resolution. Oh, that sounds like a really nice setup. That sounds like it's going to be the best out-of-the-box experience on this hardware. Yeah, I, I I like the original one, but the community around the original GPD Pocket has sort of fallen by the wayside now. Um, mm. So that's one of the reasons why I've done this, is to sort of reinvigorate that, to give those people that have got these devices somewhere to go. But the GPD Pocket 2 is sort of brand new. That that Their backers are just receiving those units now. And, you know, you can buy them on Amazon and all the rest of it. So I think it's a good time to provide a good image for that device. Rough estimation of the battery? About 12 hours. No. No. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They must cram a decent battery inside that little thing. Yeah, it's a good battery, and it's you know, and it sips sips power. So um, it's about ten hours for the original model, and about twelve for the new one. I've had both of them on a desk today. They've neither of them have seen a charger all day, and they've got about sixty percent battery life left. Hmm. Yeah, that I guess that CPU is supposed to be pretty low power, and uh, I guess the keyboard is it actually usable? I mean, you can't fit two hands on it. Uh. So in the GPD <laughs> pocket, in the original, um, the keycap arrangement was just mental. And the keycaps themselves were wobbly and they weren't accurate. Oof, and oof. you could strike a key and it wouldn't register. And that whole experience was hideous. Fortunately, although the keyboard arrangement on the GPD Pocket 2 is still, let's say, quirky, the keys themselves actually work well. So it's just a case of learning the peculiar keyboard arrangement, but when you strike a key, it does actually do what you expect it to do. And having the two side by side, the GPD Pocket 2, as somebody who does an awful lot on the command line and with a keyboard, is leaps and bounds more usable than its predecessor. Well, I enjoyed your full review on the Ubuntu podcast, so uh, people should check that out. Ubuntupodcast.org. Rumor has it there will be a full review there very soon. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> check it out there. In fact, I think uh, I think it's already out, so you might just go over there, and if it's not, just download all of them until you find it. Just download all yep, of them. It, it, Keep it going. Is out. It was out on Friday last oh, week, good. so you can go and listen to that right now. Nice. Well, uh, that is... Really making me want one. <laughs> Boy, especially if you were like an on-call engineer or something, that would just be the perfect guy to drag around with you. A terminal, no wherever kidding. you are. No kidding. You could, you know we could put Jack Audio on that thing and make it a podcast rig. You know we could do that. I wonder how it would hold up. Does it have, it has a fan, right, Wimpy? It has a little fan in there, so Joe would still yell at yeah. me. For, yeah, so the, <laughs> the original one is a software-controlled fan, and interestingly, the second-gen one actually has a hardware fan uh. button, so you can turn it on and off at will it's um, <laughs> oh. it's a bit it's a bit sort of um manual but yeah. it doesn't need the fan hey, I'll do unless it. you're doing something really you know um 
intensive with it so you can turn it on and off and obviously you can control the battery endurance with that as well the perfect broadcast rig you can just flip off the fan i think that's that's perfect so there's another set of devices that are getting an Ubuntu update of a different nature this week. The Ubaports project is getting down a pretty good cadence of releases, and they have OTA 5, which has finished up some of the uh, 1604 LTS support. You'll remember that phone versions of Ubuntu are one LTS behind. That's that's current for them. And uh, there's some nice improvements in this new release, and so we wanted to chat with... Dalton from Ubaports. Dalton is there. He, I asked him what his title was, and he told me that it was development manager. So he is their development manager, and we asked Dalton to tell us about the new release. Dalton, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So Dalton, looks like the big news this week is Ubuntu Touch OTA 5 is out. What's sort of the touchstone features in OTA 5? Yeah, OTA 5 has made a bit of noise. Uh, the big feature we've got out this time is the new browser. That is the Morph browser. This brings the Cute Web Engine, uh, replacing the old Oxide Engine. Both of them are based on Chromium, but Cute Web Engine is a lot newer. Oh, yeah. That, and it also looks like it's got sort of a more responsive design to it, so it scales across different devices and screen sizes as well. True? Yep. We've always had the device scaling features uh, coming in with Convergence, but this just adds a little bit of extra sauce to it. Oh, yeah. I suppose that probably is true. I, is that... Is that particularly tricky with Ubuntu Touch? Everything you put in has to be scalable to different device sizes. Like one of the tricks of the iOS platform is it's all fixed and they keep adding to it and changing it and adding notches and whatnot, but it's essentially all fixed. You can do dynamic layout, but you you almost always know what you're going to get. But with Ubuntu Touch, there's really no way for you as the development team to know or the key developers. Has that been a challenge or is technology to the point where that's totally doable? So a lot of developers are getting experience with this type of design with websites and mobile first, but it is always kind of a weird paradigm to get your head around where my app could be used on any of these all the time and it could change. So some of the pinnacles of that design include uh, Deco2, the browser itself, um, and a lot of other apps that we've got in our store. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, right. These, these sorts of apps are more popular. We're thinking about this already as, as people making apps for end users. I'm pretty curious. It looks like from the end user perspective, getting OTA 5 is pretty easy. You know, I can just I can just hit upgrade, get the latest OTA reboot and, and be in the new environment. How do you get to that level of QA? How do you test this stuff so you know you're not going to break people's phones, especially as a smaller team? Uh, we had a lot of people doing a lot of testing. I know for my part, I've got several devices here, including the Nexus 5 and Nexus 7 tablet. Uh, those were going from 1504 to 1604 daily. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's just a, a lot of keeping that all straight and making sure that it's all working. Um, and we have a great community and an excellent QA team who was helping us out with that throughout the entire process. That's great. We also have the new setup wizard, which helps you once you get onto 1604, since apps aren't necessarily compatible between the two, um, update all of your apps, make sure that everything's ready to go. Now, I've, I was reviewing the roadmap on the website, and it shows that really OTA 6, I think is what it's called, that's really going to be a, a release that addresses technical debt. I'm curious, like, what kind of technical debt? So with the new browser, of course, it's brand new stuff. There are issues with it. So we have uh, 
problems with if you try to change your homepage, when you click on the box, it flies off the screen and weird things like that when the keyboard okay. pops up. Okay. So, <laughs> brand new stuff. Um, bugs did find their way in. So what we're trying to do with OTA 6 is just make sure that we take care of all of those. So all of this work is pretty exciting, but what are you guys doing? What are your, what are possible approaches to increase awareness so that more people who might be interested in, in this project who don't already know, you know, might, might know to try it out and use this great new release? So word of mouth is always the most important. If you do like Ubuntu Touch, uh, get out there and talk about it. We also have a few different outreach projects for contributors right now um, with different channels helping people get started with development, especially on Ubuntu Touch. Or uh, Hacktoberfest is going on right now with DigitalOcean. So we've got bugs labeled as Hacktoberfest, which will be nice and easy for people to get started with. I'm making sure that I put in instructions on how to do the contribution, how to get started with the workflow. DigitalOcean's Hacktoberfest is being used for a couple of different open source projects. That's for, that's a, that's a great way to do it. So, Dalton, do you have a sense of about how many users are out there in the world using Ubuntu Touch at this point? Do you have a rough estimate? One of the things that we put on our banners while we're at conferences and things is we don't know who you are and we want to keep it that way. <laughs> so we deliberately don't take that much data about users. We do have inklings of information from like our push server, which sends out notifications. Um, but we don't have terribly hard numbers on that. What kind of infrastructure does that take? And um, is that a cost that is being covered by a particular sponsor? Or is that something the project is fronting to run the push servers and that kind of ba and the OTA stuff, the back end stuff? A lot of our server infrastructure is sponsored by different providers, DigitalOcean, uh, Packet.net, and Scaleway. So we do have a lot of that covered for us. Um, the push server itself is actually running on DigitalOcean's smallest VPS. Uh, luckily, it is very light uh, and does its work very well. Mm. However, for the larger things like system image, which do actually does the OTA upgrades, it is mm -hmm. a significant bandwidth cost. So we are appreciative of our sponsors and also people who support us on Patreon. Very good. Patreon sounds like a good way people could directly support the project. What's the URL for that? It is. Uh, if you want to find links to sponsor us via Patreon, Bitcoin, or a few others, that's ubiports.com slash donate. I love it. Still repping the Bitcoin, even at $6,400 of value. You're a good <laughs> man, Dalton. So, Dalton, I've got a couple of links uh, to your GitHub page, Mr. Universal Superbox, and uh, other things in the show notes like the Ubiport site, the news about the new OTA 5 release. Is there a Telegram group or any other communities you might mention that if people are just starting to get curious about Ubuntu Touch, they could go check out? Yeah, you can always join us at, at Ubiports on Telegram. Uh, we're Ubiports on most social networks, including Twitter, Facebook, Mastodon, and just about anywhere else you'd expect to find us. Very good, Dalton. Well, thanks for joining us on the Unplug program. Thanks for having me. I follow the project with some interest because it seems to me, although there's a few others out there, you got your, you got your plasma touches out there and you got your uh, purism efforts, I acknowledge, <clears throat> but I really feel like Ubuntu Touch could be a great alternative one day for that general purpose Linux distro that you can get a piece of hardware and load it on. So it's fascinating to watch the project work this stuff out. And then from my perspective, I'm like, take your time, get it right. Yeah, I want to come back in, I don't know, a year and, and just maybe have a tablet that runs that, that I leave around my house and I have on the couch every day. Huh. That'd be perfect. Huh. That would be, that would be pretty neat, pretty neat. Uh, all right, so speaking of uh, things that are pretty neat, <laughs> uh, we have something that we're working on behind the scenes 
this uh, whole production pipeline that we have is uh, manual labor intensive here at the network. And now that we're part of Linux Academy, one of the things that we want to try to do is give back anything we really can of our process to the community. Eventually, perhaps being able to go, depending on our time and resources, be able to go essentially uh, to the level of a guide you could follow to start podcasting under Linux, how to record, how to get decent audio, how to publish it, and then even some tools and scripts to help you automate some of the trickier parts. That's sort of our end-to-end goal. <clears throat> Way down the line as we build these components, in some cases, we'll just adapt existing projects. In other cases, we might create our own. And uh, we're beginning this project behind the scenes that is really uh, an automation project to, to, to make the process of deploying our episodes as error-free as possible, to take out the human element as much as possible, and to make it so when whoever edits the show, like in this case, it'd be Joe, when he hits the publish button, it's immediately available on all of the destination platforms that we publish in all of the feeds. That doesn't require any human intervention, which right now, Joe can publish it, but then somebody here in the JB office has to go actually publish it to the feeds, publish it to the website. There's a lot more manual, and it's a lot of copy pasta, a lot of filling out feeds. Uh, and eventually, we want to get it so it automates the encoding, the publishing, and even more. It's the whole pipeline from going from show notes to the website. All of it just is completely automatic. And this is going to be a modular monster that we build over time. And Wes is starting on the first parts of it right now. And once we start to build this, we'll build it in phases. We'll build the most time-critical components that we need automated, and then we'll start adding on, doing encoding. We want to circle back eventually. If you watch our videos on YouTube, we have automated renders that have the, 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 the album art with a, with a waveform that's like 13 frames a second, uh, which is for file size. The, the, the beautiful thing is those files are like 75, 80 megabytes, but the downside is the frame rate sucks. And we want to start using the videos that we use for like Linux Action News, which is a manually artisan handcraft uh, encoded Each by Joe. every week. But we want to automate all that and improve that and make our make our process just a little more um, slicker, a little easier to get shows out the door, and then we want to release all of it. So to start, I have a couple of bits that I want to draw your attention to. Number one is we need a name. We need a name for a system that automatically publishes shows. And I'd like it to be something we could refer to on air. You know, they would, it's like we have JBot, for example. We have these other components, which are well-known components because they, they, we've named them. So I'm trying to come up with a good name for this system. We've got a code name, but I don't even want to say what it is. I don't want to even spoil it with the code name. So we've created a form that we'll have linked in the show notes, linuxunplugged.com slash 271. I also just linked it in the IRC room. And it's just, what's your nickname? Because you just want to give somebody credit. And uh, what's your suggestion for the automation system's name? What should we name it? And I think we'll get, if we get a bunch of good ones in there, we'll take like the top five or something, and then we'll put it to a vote in the episode when I get back from BSD. if I survive all the Linus jokes. But we need your help. We can't do the naming and, you know, all the work of doing we it. We tried, actually. too much, and we... We not, tried, and we already, we already bombed. We couldn't come up with any names that were catchy that would be, like, a good term. Because the idea is, we're going to publish this up on our GitHub page, and we're going to make it available for anybody that wants to make it a system that, uh, that automates from show notes to publishing. 
And um, it, that's a pretty nuanced process, especially one that involves album art and, and tags and descriptions and chapter markers and videos and MP3s and YouTube and CDNs. And yeah, a lot of different services that had lot of, integration. Yeah, so there's a lot actually to it um, that solves problems. And so we want it to be available, but we want it to go by a name. Um, so we're hoping you'll help us name it. And then we have a bit of a direction change. And Mumble Room, this is, uh, this is completely open to your interpretation and your pushback if you think I'm making the, bad, uh, the wrong decision here. So floor is open to dissenters on this next one here. But I had me a think recently. Uh, it's, uh, it's funny really how this kind of works out. So Eric, the IT guy, has dutifully built us a very nice GitLab instance on a pretty beefy DigitalOcean droplet. And I bought a cool domain, jupitercode.io, right? I mean, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And we were all pretty hot to trot on this, and it really came up right around the time Microsoft announced their purchase of GitHub. And it, the infad thing to do was to abandon GitHub and, and go grow your own GitLab instance. And we thought, yeah, we should do that too. We should, you know, we should be hosting our own stuff. Um, and so he built a great one, and we got backups turned on. I mean, it's really well done. We've got some projects on there we started with, and started having to think last night. And I was chatting with Wes, and I, I was looking at our public GitHub page, GitHub.com/JupiterBroadcasting. Like, you know, there's the caster soundboard on here, which I'd love for it to get more attention. There's the Roku app on here. There's the Cody plugin on here. There's already groups and people that have been involved. There's open issues. Like this, this, this page has been cultivating a small community. And the reason we were standing up a GitLab instance was because of this anti-Microsoft hysteria. And I started having this conversation with Wes, and I'm thinking, is it actually easier, easier for discovery for the general public if we have it on GitHub when people are looking for this stuff? Like if we build a few tools, because this automation system is one of a few tools we're going to be talking about soon, we're going to talk about another tool next week that we're building, and we're going to also release as open source. Uh, and by the way, we mean GPL. Um, we want it to be publicly discoverable. We want it to be something that people can get easy access to. And so I, I just asked Wes, I'm like, pros and cons here, Wes, versus GitLab versus GitHub. And we had a few back and forth. Like you mentioned, there's a few tools we could probably use with GitLab that we might not use with GitHub. I don't remember exactly what they were. I mean, they've just there's a lot of integrated services yeah. with GitLab, right? There's there's CI stuff. There's other there's there's a lot of tweaking you can do because it's a, a thing you're running yourself, and GitHub plus, GitHub's not that way. Plus, there's the geek cred of running something yourself versus using a hosted service. Right, but it was it was all open source. So we were talking about the pros and cons of it, and sure enough, I go over to our Linux because I'm having a chat with Wes in one tab, and in the other tab, I go over to our Linux. I'm just kind of putzing around while I'm waiting for his his thoughts, and I see a thread in there, and it's all caps, reminder, migrate off of GitHub, and then it's a thread of over 100 reactionary, knee-jerk, anti-Microsoft comments. Nobody's giving a good technical reason why they should migrate off. Everybody is just knee-jerk reacting to the Microsoft purchase. They're, they just hate Microsoft. And I think I, I, I don't want to be part of that anymore. Like, at what point do we allow for the possibility of change? Open source and free software should be as much of a social thing as it is a technical thing. And at some point, we have to own up to that social participation factor. <laughs> and 
if we if we don't, we just seem bigoted and stuck in the mud. And I'm sorry if that comes off as offensive, but when I read that thread, I was offended. I couldn't I couldn't process it anymore. It was just hate for hate's sake. There was no logical argument. Like the the, the reasons we were bringing up were like control over our own instance, integration with external tools, the geek cred for having itself hosted being divorced from a commercial platform. Like, those were the advantages. We could, but that thread had none of that. It was just the Microsoft hate. And then I felt a little dirty for even taking this endeavor because of, it was just a, the, the thing to do. It was the in thing, the wave to do. It was like, let's do it, let's do it. And Eric was more than willing to build it for us. And so we ran. And then I looked back at it now after, cool, after a cooling off period, and I thought, we could actually be doing ourselves harm. There's a community that's already establishing and growing there. There's people that have already been submitting issues. There's developers who are contributing things. And it's discoverable on a public forum. Those, I think in the end of the good. day, it just doesn't making it confusing, either shifting everything or having stuff in multiple places was just more complexity than we were getting benefit out of. And we constantly have to make decisions over when do we use services or when do we roll something ourselves. And this just isn't a huge part of the stuff. Like, we're not running a GitLab. It's just not something that we need to be doing. Yeah. And if there's a point in time that we want to, GitLab's great, and we would have no problem using it. It's wonderful that we have that opportunity we and that option. We may even keep a mirror just for our own backup, really. Something we've been checking. Well, maybe we might keep it, but just for ourselves. That's something we could totally do. By the way, if in next week's episode we mention the GitLab URL, uh... Sorry about that. That was uh, we recorded that before Future Chris had changed his mind on this thing. So I don't know if that might be confusing. The show notes will be accurate, so you can go get actual links, yeah. even if we say the wrong thing. You know what we should do is have Joe go back and just record over with the right URL, which would be hilarious. Yeah, it'll I, be we, Joe's voice. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that'd be so good. No, but really, the URL you want to go to is going to be GitHub.com/slash Jupiter Broadcasting, and uh, there's a couple things that are coming there right now. There's a new project that's up there that we'll be talking about next week. Uh, that already has a name, so that's up in public. And there's a couple of things that uh, I myself have committed to it that uh, I, I was so proud. It's uh, possible because it's all Bash script in that case. And then uh, Caster Soundboard is back up there again. And boy, oh boy, I would really love it if people wanted to take a look at Caster Soundboard. It could use some love. It is a great piece of software with a ton of potential, but the UI has got a lot going on. And it could really use the ability to select sound interfaces. The great thing about it is the changes and builds that people commit get packaged up as a snap. And so it is available still as a snap. So that's actually been something we've been able to use here in studio. Um, it just has a few tweaks, like not being able to change the sound interface is a killer one for us. Uh, but we have projects up there, including Kodi plugins, all of it. We're going to try to start coming around to over time. Our mode of operation right now is we're going to fix a few things in our own house, clean up a few things, get that built, get that up on our GitHub page and make it available to people. And then over time, expand out from there, start new projects. But also, uh, we want to start contributing um, in other ways to uh, other projects. Maybe not just in code, but in other ways. So that'll all be stuff down the road. But for right now, it starts with you helping us name our automation system. We'll have a link, linuxunplugged.com slash 271, or I'll drop it in the IRC again if you want to go submit a name, and then maybe we'll vote in a couple of weeks when I get back. Pretty excited about that. But what do you guys think in the mumble room as far as abandoning my plan to go to GitLab and sticking with GitHub for now? Does anybody have initial thoughts on that? Well, the thing that I would say is that the GitLab has, has a lot of more tools and uh, better issue tracking. You, know, you can switch around issues and everything. So in that regard, I, I, I really like GitLab for that reason, not because of 
Microsoft owning whatever, but because of the tools. And I, I would say that Microsoft buying GitHub was a push to test out other stuff, but I think that the test really proved it variable. Yeah, I, I, I think that is what one of the parts I'm the most concerned about is I was really dreaming up some great uses for the issue tracker stuff. Like that was an area I thought we could expand quite a bit. Uh, so, and, you know, maybe that's an area we still use it for. Right. I mean, this doesn't have to be permanent. I think I think the biggest thing is just, I think we realized a little bit that we had some stuff, more stuff going for us over at GitHub that we realized. So we can we can build and grow there. And if we decide that GitLab is a tool that we really want to use, well, we already, we already have it. Seems, and, yeah, seems like it's worth keeping around for other reasons besides just the projects, but also as sort of like a backup. And, and people are right um, in, in the chat room that, yes, GitLab also runs their own service as a website, so we could go host it over there. I think that's a little more comparable to just using GitHub. Then it's just feature sets because they're both proprietary services. It comes back to the same old frustrating argument that seems to be particularly hard for the open source community to have, and that is the network effect. That's why people still log into Skype. That's why people still use all of these services that are closed and spy on you is because of the network effect. And that was the realization I had. It's not like it's huge over at GitHub, but it it was beginning to roll and people were interacting with it and it was seeing some success. And I just thought it's already starting to experience that network effect. Plus you have the overall network effect of being on the GitHub site. People might in some cases just assume that's where you go. Um, and so to me, that was the censor, but I'm not totally convinced. So we'll, I'm, it's an area that's open for future consideration. And the nice thing is until we get super in-depth um, with things like issues or wikis or, or other formats, as long as we're just using it for repo hosting, then all of this is easy to change. Yeah, yeah, we have such a cool thing that we're working on right now that uh, we'll talk to you about in uh, next week's episode. But before we get out of here, before we get out of here, I wanted to tell you about uh, this Photoshop for Linux replacement that I found. And really, for Linux, that's not fair. It's not. I mean, you can use it on Linux, so that part's true. You could use it on any desktop. You sure can. Um, I'm going to say it's pronounced Photopia. What about Photopea? Photopea. Oh, you're right. It's probably... God, I'm so, I, I'm so Honestly, I read it the same way that you did, though. I don't know why. And I don't know how... how maybe they... I wonder if they have guidance. No, no. No, no. There's no reason to pronounce it Photopea now that you say Photopea. No, you're completely <laughs> right. You're completely right. It's funny because you just don't... You just don't really... You never know what's going to come out of my head. You never know what it's going to come up with when it reads something. So I just kind of roll with it. Um, this looks a lot like Photoshop, and it's in your web browser. Now, I'm going to just put that out there. It's in your web browser. Now, calm down, because I know about GIMP. Calm down. I know about Inkscape. Calm down. I know about Karita. Let me explain myself here. You see, class, uh, as uh, I switched to Linux a while back, one really sticking area that I've always been fiddling with is all of the PSD files that we have. Every artist who's ever created anything for us ever has always sent it in a PSD file. We might get an SVG file. The only one that the only the only time we've ever received a logo that wasn't in PSD was the time that Dan refreshed the user error graphics and sent us something that what that's literally the only time is when Daniel wow. sent us something. Uh, and I assume because he made it under free software. I don't I don't actually know what tool chain that did, I don't I don't actually I don't think he told me. But anyway, it's probably Inkscape though. Yeah, yeah, okay, thanks, Cassidy. Uh, anyways, that's literally it, and everything else, everything from any of the shows we have ever had, any of the individual assets, they're all in PSD files, 
And for the most part, anything that involves complicated text editing really falls down in GIMP or Karita. Like, I don't, Karita won't even edit the text. It just doesn't even happen. It'll display it, but I won't edit it. GIMP has an extremely hard time. And initially, I thought I'd be okay with the GIMP support because most things seem to be working when I would, op- when I would open up in GIMP. As time went on, I realized, especially as I would go back to some of the older stuff, it, in some cases, was butchering it. And I didn't know it until I would render it out and save it. And then I'd send it to somebody and say, what the hell is this? Uh, it was kind of embarrassing because I sent it to a graphic artist. And I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? It's not that bad of a logo. I mean, I know I, I, know I think it could use a refresh. And then, then they sent it back to me. Um, so I, I was essentially started down the path of trying to get Photoshop working under wine, which boy, is that a backache. Just a lot of fun. If you can get your hands on Photoshop seven, which I could not, you know, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time checking the backs of trucks on the internet anymore. Uh, free software has, has dulled my skills of finding windows, Juarez. <laughs> <laughs> and so I could not find Photoshop seven. It made me feel like an old man. Uh, and trying to get creative cloud installed under Linux is a joke. So I'm um, really glad I'm getting the full benefit out of that creative cloud subscription. Kept digging around for alternatives, trying to figure out if I could just really what I did is I spent the most time, time trying to make it work under GIMP. Eventually though, I came around to Photopea, photopea.com. It was it was a bit of a shaggy dog discovery uh, because I first discovered them on GitHub as I was going through GitHub looking at different projects and their PSD support. And they have some open source projects, which maybe I'll get Wes to talk about here in a second, but their main core application is not open source. It is closed source. And so I, I just happened to check out their website for some reason and discovered that they basically have built Photoshop in the web browser. And it has full support for PSD files, for GIMP XCF files, for .sketch files, for any SVG, TIFF, JPEG, PNG, DNG, you name it. It's, it's got support for it. And it'll open them up from your local machine. You don't have to upload it to a cloud storage first. It'll upload it from your local file system. Yeah, like this all just happens locally. It's just a JavaScript app running. There's not a cloud component. You can actually uh, disconnect your computer from the internet once this app is loaded. And as long as you don't close the tab, it will continue to work. It's pretty great. And I was able to open up a Photoshop file that has always only worked under Photoshop. I'm telling you guys, I was getting so desperate. I was preparing to do the Mac in the cloud. Have you heard about this service? No. This is something that Mike told me about on Coda Radio. This is his solution because he switched over to Elementary OS as his daily driver, but he still got to build and sign iOS applications and for his you customers. Got to be on a Mac. So he got a Mac and a cloud subscription where it's just like a Mac Mini that he gets remote accelerated remote desktop. So there's just some racks of Mac Minis out there just <laughs> yeah. so people can do. That. Yeah. And so it's, and he's able to do it through his web browser on his Linux desktop. Nice. So I was thinking, I could, you know, that is a ridiculous way to get access to all of these legacy PSD files. But I was starting to consider it because I need, about once a week, I need access to something in this catalog. And I generally need access right away because it's somebody asking me for something or a show needs to go out and it needs something. And I thought, okay, maybe this is one way I could avoid this. If I can't find Photoshop 7, I mean, I was desperate. So when I came across Photopea and I opened up that PSD file, I edited that text field, and then I saved it out as a JPEG, I signed up for the pro account. And I got you in there, and I got Joe in there, and I got Brent in there. So that way we could all try it out and and really kind of kick the tires on this thing. And before we get into some of the open source projects that are involved in, I kind of want to hear what Brent thought of it 
because uh, I, I got to imagine there's been times, Brent, when you're working with photos, you've wished that Photoshop has been available for Linux. Not that GIMP isn't great, but that's got to have crossed your mind. And I'm wondering if this scratched that itch a little bit or if it fell short for you. Mm, good question. Uh, I uh, My first reaction to this was, well, I, it's not actually that interesting to me because I've been on open source software for such a long time and I work basically all in my own little silo. Um but then I was thinking about all these little edge cases, right? And uh, and I remember when I was switching from Photoshop and those proprietary tools into open source, it was this strange gray area where I was still, you know, a lot of the work that I was doing was still in BSDs and things like that. And then I was trying to move over um, without necessarily having a license um, to the software because I was trying to get away from it. So then I thought, oh, wait a second, this actually might be really useful for a lot of people. And surprisingly, it is fairly functional for, I guess, what could be described as a web application. Yeah, I opened up opened some PDFs in there, opened some some various just random images that I have. Hmm. It is, it's pretty nice. I will also say that they do a good job. It's it's fairly responsive, especially for a browser app. And when you're loading something like, like a, a PostScript file or a PDF and it doesn't have the right fonts, it's very clear about what's happening, which ones you're missing and what it's yes. substituting. Yes, thank you for bringing that up because one of the things that it will do is it will go out to various resources on the internet and try to match it. And if it can't, it'll try to match it with the closest free alternative, which is pretty neat. That is nice. It's a nice system there. So all in all, Brent, any other impressions you took away from using it? Did it feel like a decent tool to you or did it, did it uh, feel a little weak? Uh, yeah. When you asked me to look at this, I actually ended up taking a whole bunch of notes because I thought, oh, geez, this is really interesting. So my first observation is that I ended up um, using a whole bunch of keyboard shortcuts, um, which is how I usually use GIMP or, or Darktable and things like that. Um, but I ended up, um, about half of them worked uh, in this web UI, which is great. But then I kept trying to zoom in and stuff, with, which is just control and, and scrolling. Um, and then I ended up, it, it didn't quite work. So I took that at first like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. But then I thought, oh, wait, I feel so at home in this web app that I'm, I, my brain doesn't even know the difference between using the web app and a native application. So I thought, oh, geez, they're, they're doing a good job here if I can't even, you know, I forget after 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, you could, you could wrap it up in a native fire script and get away with thinking it was a local application. With layer palettes and colored settings. It's a complicated UI. I mean, this is it's an impressive little app. And so they do have a few things they're contributing open source that you found. Yeah, they have they have a GitHub account. I mean, again, that it was easy to find as mm -hmm. a result of that. Uh, just nothing crazy, but they've got some some typesetting scripts to like work with OTF or, or TrueType fonts. Uh, they've got a TIFF decoder. You can go poke around and see. It's a lot of uh, gnarly JavaScript. <laughs> yeah, it's some really complicated stuff, but. Then again, that's exactly the kind of thing you want somebody else to do all the hard lifting on. I, I was excited, honestly, just for, you know, there's all kinds of, I know how to convert files, right? I know how to use GIMP. I like, if I need to make an ICO or I need to convert something for someone, I have the tools to do that. But if you already like, have access to this, it can also be really nice for you just want to like, you can load from a URL, then you could quickly save out another file that you needed to convert, even on whatever computer you're at. So that part seems nice too. There's a couple other interesting things about it just as we wrap up. Uh, number one is they offer it as a white label service. So you can white label this and repost it. And then they also offer a decent API. So you could... We'll have to play with that. Yeah, it's a photo editor with an API in the web browser, Photopea, if you want it, P-E-A, if you want to uh, try it out. And again, 
I'm not, I'm not saying it's replacing your GIMP. I'm saying it's supplementing when sometimes that PSD file just won't open or you want something that works a little bit more like Photoshop 7. So if your brain knows that Photoshop 7 style layout, uh, this is pretty much it. It's like Photoshop Lite a little bit. Just just the stuff you actually used in Photoshop. <laughs> there, are, there are two other things I really liked about it yeah. that I just want to mention quickly. Uh -huh. uh, one of them, which is I, I tend to read terms of services for these things, uh, and it was nice and short and concise. But one of the things I loved was right. one of the first lines was, the content is yours. These terms, uh, I'm going to read it now. These these terms don't grant us, and we don't claim any ownership rights on your content, which mm. some of the other applications, it's a gray area there. Yeah, good catch. Good thinking. Yeah, I bet you would check that. Well, you know, that's an important part of any creative um, audience. So, um, But then the other part that, Chris, I think you, you would really like this is um, if you end up logging in with one of the accounts that they support, uh, which is Google or Facebook or GitHub, uh, GitHub, I thought was interesting, but um, they will store your preferences across different sessions. Uh, so you can be on multiple computers and still have all of your preferences uh, synced between all of those, which I thought was great. I do like that. I do like that. That is, this is probably how I will be tweaking show art while I'm on the road, I think, to meet BSD. I think so. This is what I'm going to do. This is probably it right here. Well, thank you, Brent, for taking a look. I like that. Uh, go get more Popey and Mr. Wimpy and Mark, too, over at the Ubuntu podcast. Uh, Wimpy, you know what you ought to do is you ought to invite that uh, Dan Foray guy on the show, and uh, you should ask him the really hard questions. Spoilers. <laughs> I'm just saying you should think about it. Just think about it. I'm not saying. Already thought about it. Oh, okay. Check, check, check back in in two days' time. <laughs> oh, you know. I, I, are you kidding? I listen on day one. I listen the day it comes out. Yep. I will. Yeah. Uh, listen on Thursday. It. Good, good. And uh, Cassidy, anywhere you want to send folks uh, to to check out, uh, I don't know. No, you got a new release. You got a Patreon page. You got a lot going on. You got a, you got a you got a machine. You're raising funds for anything you want to just give a plug out to. Give it out there because you stayed for the whole show. You deserve it. <laughs> I mean, just head to uh, elementary.io to check out Juno, and there's the release post is linked to from there. And uh, otherwise, you can find me at twitter.com slash Cassidy James or over on the uh, soon to be dead Google plus at uh, Cassidy James as well. <laughs> Too soon. Hey, you know what? By the way, I was following your tweets about the Pixel 3 camera. You are right. That is some amazing stuff. It's pretty bonkers. It is. It is. So Cassidy was calling out some of the tricks they're doing. It's just, it's just incredible. You're going to make me get one. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go read his Twitter feed. It's, it's, you're, you're going to be pretty impressed. All right. Well, I'll mention my Twitter. I'm at Chris Les. He's at West Payne. You can go get more of him at techsnap.systems. And of course, everything we talked about today linked at linuxunplugged.com slash 271, including your name submissions for our project. We really do want those. I'll be out at Meet BSD next week, but we will have a recorded episode released for you. And then I'll be back the Tuesday after that with our regular live show. So uh, do come back. Join us in that virtual log. You can just Google mumble jupiter colony and it'll come up it's easy peasy and then the chat room during the show is irc.geekshed.net pound hashtag number sign jupiter broadcasting you go in there you chat with us we chat with you it's a good show it's a good time but it's even better if you're there it's even better thanks for joining us and we'll see you right back here next tuesday
that's a big show. That's one of our longer what ones. What just happened? And I just told Joe, I'm going to try to keep it to an hour ten. <laughs> You're just trolling him now. You know, what's funny is we recorded two Linux Unplugs last week. We had the regular show, and then we had to make the, the makeup show for the week that we're, I'm, I'm out. And we were like, what the hell are we going to talk about? We're going to have no show next week. We just did two shows. Boom. It was a huge show. But Echo, we were talking on the pre-show about KX Studio a little bit, which has been helpful. Uh, and we're going to talk about that next week a little bit. It's been helpful for us here in the studio. Uh, and you were saying that that is a one-person shop over at KX Studio, which is mind-blowing. Yeah, it's a fault. Falk, F-A-L, I forget. He's, like, super cool in the uh, IRC. He's been really helpful, although. Oh, man. Falk TX, <laughs> otherwise known as Felipe Caleo. That is, yeah, that, wow, that's that is amazing. a lot of hard work. It's a, KX Studio is a great set of plugins and repositories and packages to make audio production and real-time audio production uh, doable under Linux. And uh, it's a big part of what we're using these days. So, oh, man. That's great. That's it's amazing what one person can do in open source, and uh, at the same time, it makes you really want to go over there and contribute somehow. It really does. 